back to the Stable Moments podcast. We are bringing you part two of Shenandoah's interview. If you haven't seen part one or listened to part one, you should go back and listen to the episode that we put out called Garbage Bag Suitcase. That is one that is actually her website. Um, But we are focused on part two and continuing the conversation. So I am going to jump right to it, roll that intro, and then we will finish up with part two. I'm Rebecca Britt, and this is the Stable Moments Podcast. I started this podcast to understand from all perspectives how we can help end the foster care crisis. The overwhelming response was we need to support our local community. Unwanted, abandoned, orphaned children are the community's responsibility. We must support, guide, love, invest, raise up generations that will nurture, love, and support their own children to end this crisis. So the purpose of this podcast is to build an army of people that are interested and willing to take responsibility of our foster youth and who are supportive of foster and adoptive families. This is the on-ramp for people who want to get involved but might not know where to start. I want this to be a place where community members feel like they can make a difference, where they feel good enough to make that difference, and believe that they can be a big deal in the life of a child. Thanks for being part of our community and make sure to join the conversation in the Stable Moments podcast Facebook group. Together we can end the foster care crisis. So obviously you have such a unique and um, valuable perspective and I feel like one that that I'm excited that you wrote a book because anybody has access to this perspective. So tell us about Garbage Bag Suitcase and, and what you know, you said that you kept this a secret for a long time. So what inspired you to finally write it and, um, and who is it intended for? Yeah. So it came about because, um, I eventually, you know, that job at the law office as a receptionist turned into a lot of different jobs and about 20 years of a career working in the legal field for me, becoming a legal secretary, a paralegal. And then finally, by the time I was like 21 or 22, I was a law office director. And so as part of my job, I was hiring and firing our law clerks. And I hired a law clerk that I fired because he wasn't doing such a great job, but I ended up marrying him and staying married to him for a really long time. And we decided in our 20s to open a law firm because of course, in our 20s, we just knew we could do it better than all the old people, right? Like... (laughs) you sort of just have these big dreams in your 20s that you just have all the answers. Mm-hmm. And so we opened up a law practice with this idea that we would just really understand our clients and do law differently than we had seen it being done. And in doing that, we were in a community where we didn't know anybody, we only had each other. And our criminal defense clients really became our friends and family. So mm-hmm. we would laugh that like, the mailman would get uncomfortable because we'd be getting stacks of letters from prison, right? And he'd just be like, this is weird and uncomfortable. <laughs> but we were the only connection for a lot of people. Sure. And after 15 years of doing that together, we realized that we had started representing whole families, mm-hmm. grandfathers, fathers and sons. And we started saying how we asked a really stupid question, but I think all brilliance starts from a really stupid question usually. And the stupid question, Rebecca was, how can we help these clients make better decisions? Cause that's, what's really wrong. They're just poor decision makers and they make poor choices because for regardless of what the media tells us, most people are in jail and prison for really petty things. Mm-hmm. Like most people aren't there for like murders and right. rapes. Probation and like violation. Big, 
Yeah. It's like they've done something stupid and it, it compounds. Right. They're out on bond for a drunk driving and then they get caught drinking again. And then, then their bond gets revoked. Right. And it, it it's like really stupid stuff for most clients. So we said, how can we just help them make better decisions? Like that's what this is. And so I went back to school to get a coaching certificate with the idea of like, what if we did life coaching within our office, just as like a free service? Like if you hire us, you could have some sessions. So you would start being a better decision maker. That was like literally right. Cause we're young. So we're like, we can just do innovative right. things. And we started doing that. And what really came out of it was a bunch of clients telling me that they had spent time in child welfare. Mm. And so I started changing the question to like, what's happening? What happened to you? What happened to you? What's, and how is that impacting you now? Mm-hmm. And what's different about them than me? Mm. Right? And right. so on my lunch, I Googled foster care statistics. And the first thing that popped up was that 72% of our incarcerated population was in child welfare. And at the time, it was like 1.2 million inmates, which meant that over a million of them had spent time in foster care in all kinds of ways, reunifications, adoptions from infants, old kids ran away, all kinds of ways. And I thought, okay, there's something here. And then I had a female client who had a very similar story to me, and she was not in a position to share her story you know, it's like she was dealing with too much with just the legal ramifications sure. happening in her life and her addiction and her whole thing. Um, but I really saw her as the version of me who would have gotten the other job and not the job that I got. And, and I said something to her about my experience, wherein she disclosed a lot of personal trauma. And I left that meeting and came home and told my husband, I was going to write a book. And he very supportively said about what you haven't really done anything because I had this whole secret that I hadn't shared with him. And so I told my husband that I wanted to write this book, not just about my time before care and during care, but really about what are we going to do about it, Mm -hmm. which was like the gap that I really saw. And so I spent what I thought was going to be 30 days writing a book took me five years because I had to unpack. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, and I had to get notes back from my editor saying things like, what was the color and make of the car you were pushed out of? Mm. And I didn't want to relive that experience. Like I thought I had been tucked that deep far away. Right. And, and that one simple question from an editor would just send me catapulting down a really dark place. And so um, it took me five years to write and release the book. And on the day that the book was released, I remember telling my husband, I think this was a really big mistake, which was mm. the same thing I said the day before I gave birth. <laughs> I don't want to do this anymore. This was a really bad idea. I've said it twice in my life and those were both the time. <laughs> and he said, if one person's life has changed, then the whole process will be worth it. And so I agreed. And we didn't think that the book would do anything. Like everyone told us independent publishers never get read. Just don't worry about it. You're not going to do anything with this. And I did not have that experience. My book ended up being read and it ended up winning a lot of awards, which led me to be on a lot of big stages. And then pretty soon people were saying, tell us how to fix it. Mm -hmm. So we know about adverse childhood experiences. We know about resilience, but what we don't know is, how do we lead from example 
and not just talk about it. So we can say we're trauma informed because we went to a training, but how do we actually change the work within our system? Mm. And so it opened me up for a whole new place and, and to do a lot of more writing and to talk about what are those things we can do and how do we begin to stop asking what's wrong with you and not only ask what happened to you, but ask what's strong in you and how can we build on that? Mm -hmm. I love that. So tell me about um, the 4600 and counting movement. Yeah, so I started this with with a friend of mine, uh, Marnie Grundman. When we started getting reports and hearing reports, her and I met each other. We were both speaking at a similar event. And, and at the time, Time Magazine broke a story out of Kansas about kids who were missing from foster care. And what Marnie and I both knew is that there were lots of kids missing. And this article talked specifically about 81 kids in Kansas who were missing. And we knew it was more than that. So Marnie's experience was she had never been in foster care, but she had begun running away from home at the age of five and ended up being sex trafficked. Mm -hmm. While I was in foster care, I had numerous times gone missing and nobody was even looking for me or knew that I was missing. Mm -hmm. And we knew lots of other kids in similar situations. And so we started delving into figuring out how many kids are missing and the federal government estimates, because they won't tell you exactly because they don't know that 1% of all kids who enter care will go missing, which equates to 4,200 kids a year. Mm. So somehow we have roughly now with today's numbers, about 5,000 kids a year who go missing that nobody's looking for that aren't reported to the center for missing and exploited children because nobody even knows they're gone mm -hmm. and there's lots of loopholes and lots of people who do not want to be held accountable and so we just started breaking that down with we have to raise awareness and what we began realizing is that when we started saying this people got really uncomfortable really quickly mm -hmm. and then said no no we have to report and so we had lots of whistleblowers involved saying no, we can just mark that a kid returned to their bio family, but we don't have to prove that they did. We can just say that's where we think they are. And I said, could you imagine if, if a, my child went missing and I said, well, I just think they're this. They're over there, so I don't need to report them. Uh, like I would be brought up on charges, but somehow we're allowing states and governments to just get away with this idea of like, oh, they went Explain home, so that. we don't need to look. And, Explain that and to me though. Them. Explain that to me though. So they are saying we don't have to report what? We don't have to report this child is missing because we can make a natural conclusion that they've returned to their biological family. Oh, okay. So a child leaves, is missing from their foster home or somewhere in state's custody. And mm -hmm. it's just rather than it's a runaway. Well, even in a runaway situation, they're not actually missing if we deem them a runaway. No one will look for you if you're a runaway in the system. And <laughs> it, and if you're a run, runaway in the system, are you deemed a runaway because of past behavior and or you left some yes. type of note that says I'm leaving? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And then, so... 
but nobody is, nobody comes to look for you. So if one of your children ran away, right? Like we've all heard the old story, like, oh, I packed my suitcase and told my mom I was running yeah. away when I was six, It would be an right? Amber Alert. Like you could do an, be an Amber yeah. Alert, right? right? Yeah. You would call the police if you thought your child had actually run away. I'm guessing. I'll make that assumption, right? Now yeah, he's probably just over there. I... <laughs> right? <laughs> now imagine you're a kid in care. You've run away. Let's say you left a note saying you're run away. Let's say we put all the, the clues we can. Nobody's coming to look for you. How is it? And to marked? me, that's absurd. That's absurd so, to me. So like, how that is that marked in like, so a case manager has to put eyes on every month or whatever. Mm -hmm. So it could just be like, Oh, they've just still be gone. I, the horror stories that began to come out when Marty and I started this is that I had foster parents calling. I had biological parents. We had other people saying, I know that this kid's missing, but nobody will go do anything about it. Or I had foster parents who said, you know, this kid ran away and they're calling me, but I'm told I can't have any communication with them anymore. What do I do? <laughs> okay, so we could at the very least, because when you said they went missing and we had no way of knowing, then I was like, well, what do you do with that? But we could have, we could at least have the data. Well, we could at least have the data, but that assumes it's being reported correctly, which many whistleblowers told us it's not because they don't want it to look like they don't know where kids are. So we misreport it. That's that's one issue. The second issue is, is why would we have the same response that any parent would have if their child went missing? Right. I mean, if my child goes missing, and listen, I've got a, a child in college overseas. So like I can still on find a phone, see where that kid is. And if I don't know where she is, I'm on the phone with her, like checking in, right? So if my kid goes missing. I don't care. She's international. I will call Interpol. I don't care. Like every red flag is going up. And I don't know why we don't have the same response just because a child's in care. But what, but, but why don't we? Like, it's a great question. How right? it, because, it, like, I so mean, the it, only conclusion I'm left to draw is that those kids aren't worthy. What, right. Well, so it's like, oh, I mean, it's the same type of bias we have for, other populations. Oh, right. that one doesn't matter. We'll put less resources to it. Da, da, da. But so if I'm a foster parent and mm -hmm. I say my kid's missing. Okay. Is there a difference between like a three-year-old and a 14-year-old? You don't know. I think, I think it depends on your jurisdiction, your state, your caseworker, mm -hmm. the resources allotted to you. It, and it's a two-way street, by the way. We have foster parents who will try to report. And then, you know, things happen within the natural course. And it's like, oh, she's with her boyfriend. This is the literally the case that I was dealing with. And she was like, but that's not a safe situation. And she's asking for help, but she doesn't want to come because you guys aren't going to place her back with me. And I'm like her safe person. <laughs> but like, then the foster parents held accountable because, well, she ran away from you. It's like. But, but a parent, like if your kid ran away, they wouldn't just go somewhere else. Like they're going to come back home to where they know, right? So we have that issue. 
But we also have foster parents whose kids go missing, but they don't report or missing. Yeah. And who just continue to collect checks and nobody knows where the kid is. And what happens when like a visit happens? Oh, but see, especially in COVID, visits are happening in all kinds of ways. And oh, we can't be on camera. And oh, there's these excuses, but everything's going fine. And it can happen for years. And caseworkers who are overwhelmed and don't lay eyes on their kids at all times. Mm -hmm. Or sees three of the kids and one is just like, oh, she's at her grandmother's during this. Yeah. And so we have all of these, right? Again, it's not just yes or no. It's like all of the extremes in between. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and then if you get the the child who cries wolf, we'll just say, right, uh, uh, what we call a runner in, in our circles who runs a lot. Well, then we're not going to, we don't want to use all the resources right. every time the same mm-hmm. kid runs. But that's why when we look at sex trafficking and human trafficking, a vast majority, estimates of sometimes over 80% in the United States have come from child welfare, our kids from the child welfare system. Yeah, I get that. And I even, you know, kill me for saying this, but I even get the justification of we're not going to allocate resources to this, to a, a consistent runner. At the very least, we can have reporting that says right now they're, they've run, they ran away in May. We haven't seen them since. Right now they're missing. Um and like, uh, I was talking to a case. At manager. the very least, it should be reported because if you, if you got on the, the website for the center of missing and exploited children, right. You can see children who are missing from every state. Like anyone can get on. This is like available to the public. Right. That's the whole point, right. In case you know a kid who's missing. Foster kids aren't on there. So even so at the very least we could put up, even if it's a kid who runs a lot. at the very least couldn't we just put their information up yeah yeah um yeah we do that (laughs) report it right so there's like reporting within the department of children and family system and then having that report to uh missing and exploited children i get that yeah i we were i was talking to um i was talking to somebody on the podcast that's a florida case manager and she said that they did implement a system where like they have to take an actual physical picture of the child that gets downloaded to the system. So some technology and even earlier when you were talking about bias, uh, I was mm-hmm. talking to a case manager in Vermont um, that was working very hard to have certain checklists of criteria where bias was you know, they were trying to make it so limit, yeah, yeah. limit bias. Yeah. Um, so there's some solutions, but there yeah. Are. Yeah. So tell me about with 4,600 and counting movement, what is the call? Like, what do you see happening yeah. with uh, that? So for us, it's a grassroots movement really. And it's really about awareness. It's really about building awareness and what is shocking is how many people just don't know it's an issue. I mean, I'm in the space. (laughs) I'm in the space. And I never thought to do a podcast on uh, missing missing kids kids in foster care. So here we go. Here, here we are. Right. So, so for us, it, it is 
literally just that. We we don't raise funds. We're not doing anything. We had initially started with some some petitions on change.org and that it's really just about awareness and mm-hmm. building awareness. And so even though Marnie and I aren't as active as we used to in both of the spaces we still occupy, we still keep it as part of our bios because it's an opportunity to still say like, this is an issue. Talk about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is happening. This is real. Waiting for somebody and like, I'm on LinkedIn, like at the center of missing, like, can we fill this? You know, they're talking about the great work. They do great work. I'm not like, it's no criticism of them at all. But I'm like, what about this gap? Like, I'm, a, I'm the person who's constantly with the comment about like, what about this population? Right? Because I'm just trying to get people to say this is an issue that's mm-hmm. important and valuable. And I think like a lot of other populations, it's easy to ignore. And and so we sort of broke it down. Like if you said like 4,600 kids, right? Which is old numbers, by the way, those are those are old statistics. But when we really broke it down, we said, okay, but 4,600, 52 weeks in a year, that's like 88 kids a week. Like, could you imagine if a school lost 88 kids a week? No. If the public school system, not, not a specific district, but just the American public school system, you heard we're losing 88 kids a week. Like there would be a mass uproar. Mm-hmm. But yet this system has been operating that way and everybody's just like, but it's less than 1%. And really? I'm saying that's 88 humans a week. Like I sometimes can't sleep if I start thinking about it too long. Is there any agenda to have, you know, I guess it would probably be like state level policy that would need to be. Yeah, there was some federal policy under Obama about trying to close that gap of reporting. But again, we we find loopholes like to the reporting, like it is supposed to be reported to the Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Like that's a that's a legislative rule. But but we can find exceptions to the rule and mm-hmm. that's where we begin getting into trouble. Right. So I always say we can't always legislate everything. Mm-hmm. And in the process of holding people accountable, it becomes really easy to want to put this topic under the carpet because no leader wants to be held accountable on missing kids. Yeah. Yep. Which by the way, is probably a system they inherited. And one they continue to ignore. So it's yeah. not necessarily that they're specifically intentionally losing children, mm-hmm. but it's an easy issue to ignore in the broad base of everything you're dealing with in child welfare. It would be awesome to see which states are doing well, or like if the um, like if the Florida system for actually having to take a picture of a child. Um, and it and it like pings the location. So the case manager has to be somewhere where they're supposed yeah. to be with the child because you could just like snap a picture from a Facebook post I mean, if you wanted to get around it or you felt like yeah. your load was too heavy. But it actually does say which location you were at. So it, and it captures all of that um, through GPS. And so but it would be interesting to see those numbers. And if a system like that did help. Um, and then use those, that model. Um, in other yeah. States. I mean, we have technology. The other thing is, is in the last five years, since we started doing this, the, the, 
the work around sex trafficking has become much more mainstream and talking about that issue and in the various ways in which human trafficking is happening, not just sex trafficking, but human trafficking as well. And I think that helps shine a light and they're trying to talk about that issue because very often they're seeing kids in care who are coming into the system and like trying yeah. to back back get them services based on that right so a lot of their work is like what do you qualify for and if you were in care you can qualify for things if you're still of a given age right so they're asking those questions and so i do see sort of like it's momentum right like the more these different areas start to realize hey we're trying to achieve the same thing we get that awareness and that tipping point where real people are saying this is important. And, and the reason the, the story in Kansas broke is that the head of DHHS for the state was giving a report to, to Congress, right? And in it, she sort of half mentioned these missing kids, <laughs> like just as like a sentence in this report. And a congressperson was like, excuse me, what'd you just say? Like 81 kids, what? And was just like, couldn't believe that there were 81 missing. And what's being done about that? In, in all the reports this person had given, nobody had ever said anything. Hmm. Yeah. Right? It was just like, that's another number on a page. And this particular congressperson was just like, that's unacceptable. Like, we're going to talk about these 80 kids, right? And, and so it takes that sometimes. Yeah. And I, and I think that the awareness around and activism around uh, sex trafficking is great, you know, and I think people are really involved in it. But again, it brings up this bias issue, just like you were talking about, had you chose the stripper job versus the minimum yeah. wage job? I mean, I hear over and over again, you know, oh, well, she was a sex worker referring to a 13 year old who can't oh, be yeah. a sex worker. Like it was it a choice. So like, oh, well, she chose to be a, like, you can't be a 13 year old prostitute. Okay. You're being sex trafficked. So you're a victim at that point. And if you're in care, um, then it is care's responsibility to, to find and it, you. And if you have been that worker from the age of 13 and now you're 22, is it still really a choice? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what I have to ask people, right? Mm -hmm. Like, really? At, at 18, that 18-year-old girl who stood there and made that choice with, with no help, who really needed money, is that a choice? Mm -hmm. right. I get that I wasn't a child, but I had a lot of undealt with trauma. Some thanks to the system you all decided to put me into. Like, we have some responsibility as citizens. Right. And we try to scapegoat ourselves quite frequently from this responsibility. Mm -hmm. But like the system is us. Right. Sure. Right. So like um, I didn't have any supports. So Y'all just said you're on your own. And then you're surprised I made a poor decision. Yeah. Well, and right. I mean, when, by the way, my whole life tells me that that men will pay for sex and use women for sex, because that's what you've been doing my whole life. Right. Both to my mother and to me. Right. So now all of a sudden you want to pay me to do this thing that I've had taken from me. And now you want to tell me it's a choice and I should be held accountable for that. Mm. Right. Because, because mm. really all that does is when we say she's making a choice is scapegoating that we don't have any responsibility in it. Mm -hmm. 
we don't have to hold typically men responsible for paying for those services in the first place. Right. Right. No responsibility for them. It's her choice because she put herself there. Mm-hmm. And then we don't have to talk about all these things that happened to her to get her to that spot. Mm-hmm. Because I don't know very many women who grew up in really healthy situations who are saying, I'm just going to grow up to be a sex worker. Right. 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 But we are just like, I don't, I don't know very many men who are little boys saying, I can't wait to turn into a serial killer. Right. Right. Okay. So like it it works both ways. And so we have to begin to take responsibility. And I, I talk about a case in my book um, that we were representing a man who was accused of drowning his girlfriend. Now this man is in prison and between me, you and your listeners, I am 100% confident and I'm very rarely 100% in anything that this man is guilty of the crime that he was accused of. And he's currently in prison where he'll be for the rest of his life. We would probably all agree that's a great place for him. What we don't understand in that case is that when him and his three brothers were younger, they were all sexually abused by their father and that their father would take them out to raid houses and then burn them to the ground. And there were lots of red flags with this family. Everyone in the community knew this family and nothing was ever done. All of those brothers are currently in prison on rape or murder charges. Now, I agree that they need to be held accountable. But what I think we don't usually have the conversation about is how we failed them as children Mm. before their crimes were committed. And we scapegoated that they caused those crimes and they should be held accountable because it makes it easy for us to justify that, that we did everything we could mm-hmm. and they should have made different choices. You see, and made different choices then they wouldn't have been in that situation. We don't have to say, I failed you. And I'm sorry that you're here. Mm-hmm. And I really think that's the case. Oh yeah. And we see it as this either, or you should just be held accountable. And I don't want to be held accountable for the failure that I caused in the system. And the part I played in that. Yeah. And it, and it is. Um, so what's the answer there with like small, small inklings? Like I, I can imagine if I saw something at the park that I didn't really like, or if there was something that, you know, we're, we all, we don't know, like, should we get involved? Should we not get involved? How do you get involved? What's a kind way to get involved? You know, we don't want to step on other people's toes. Do people want us there? You know, there's but here's of- the thing. How do we empower each other to be empathetic? Mm-hmm. Can we suspend judgment? Can we see that people are in pain? And can we open our space to say, I can see you're in pain, Rebecca, and there's nothing I can do about it, but just know I can see you're in pain. Mm -hmm. We don't even want to do that. We pretend we can't even see the pains happening, Mm. which just further isolates people, right? Mm -hmm. So I shared this story about being in a grocery store one day, and it was, um, we have this local grocery store that's sort of like a Walmart. It sells everything, right? But then you get in this line and it takes like two hours to check out and you just like wonder your, if your whole existence is worth it, right? Like I don't need any food this week because this line is so ridiculous. And I was in one of those lines and I talk about how I try to sometimes lighten the mood, like tell jokes and like, right? Because everyone's so angry and you can just feel that. And mm-hmm. it's 
it's not good, right? And I want to be more connected to people in my community. So I usually play this game, like if we were stranded on a desert island, how long could we survive with the stuff they're selling us in this aisle, right? Like mm. all the candy and the magazines and the beef jerky and blah, 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 right? And usually women hate it, but the guys think it's hilarious. So like, and there was a woman in front of me when I said it, she just like glared at me and the guy behind me like started joking around with it. And eventually it's her turn. And I live in a community where like, if there's like an inch of space on the conveyor belt, you are expected to put your groceries on it, right? Like don't waste time. Like you start doing it as soon as there's an inch of space. And so I was doing that. And I heard the cashier say to this woman, did you find everything you need today? And this woman just went ballistic. I mean, it was 30 seconds and this, the cashier was crying and people now in the line behind me all like, we're not going anywhere now. Right. Because this woman is having an adult tantrum. And I just thought I shouldn't insert myself in a situation. Right. This will tell everybody why the only reason I care about gun control is because I'm inserting myself into situations I should not be inserting myself into. But I knew what I could hear from her rambling is that she was upset about peanut butter. But nobody's that upset about peanut butter. Like it's an irrational response. Right. And so whenever you see an irrational response, there's something else going on. I mean, it's the biggest red flag of all. And what we try to do is like, nope, it's about peanut butter. How can I solve the peanut butter, right? When we see a behavior, it becomes about this thing. It's like, it's not about that at all. So like, I was trying to get close to her. And you know, when someone's really mad, they don't want to look at you in the eye, right? Like they'll do everything to avoid eye contact. And so then I just gently sort of like touched her elbow because, you know, I have weird things about touch other people do, but sometimes like, you're just trying to like stop it, right? And she sort of took a breath and in her breath, I said, I am really sorry. That's all I said. Like, I am just really sorry. And the cashier started moving really fastly and she stopped yelling. And then she just burst into tears. And she said, my mom just died and my husband's in ICU. Hmm. And these doctors don't understand anything. And then I come to this store and it's so big and they don't even have a can of peanut butter. And I need peanut butter for my dog to get my dog a pill, right? And so she's just like, is spewing all of this. I can't do anything about any of these problems she is having. But all I could say again was, I'm really, really sorry. And mm. she said, thank you. So what happens? She leaves. And everyone in line starts clapping because they haven't heard this conversation, right? Like we're just having this conversation and they're way back there and they start clapping, which just worsens the whole thing, right? Like they're glad she's gone because now we move, but here we go. So I, I, I finally get done trying to make the cashier feel better, right? Thinking I need a drink when I get home. And as I walk through the doors, I can see this woman standing outside the store outside. And I'm just like, oh no. Like, I don't like, like you I can't have my number. I don't want to do therapy with you. <laughs> right. And she just says, I just want you. Can I hug you? And can I tell you how grateful I am for you? Like, we sometimes we just need to be seen. We don't need anyone to solve our problem. Mm-hmm. We just need to be seen. 
Well, and it, it and I, when you said the adult tantrum thing too, you don't know how many times, like even with a toddler or with children, they're, they are being irrational or they're freaking out about a specific toy or a cookie or whatever it is. And you're like, oh, yeah, you'll, get, you'll have this long conversation about the damn cookie, but they're tired or something happened at school that day or they're because friends- we're in survival brain, right? We're in fight, flight, freeze brain. And when we're in survival brain, we can't get to executive functioning. So most people with toddlers are like, listen, you can't rationalize with them while they're having the tantrum. You got to get them to calm down from the tantrum then have the conversation about appropriate behavior. But we I mean, keep the conversation going about the yes. flipping cookie. Or the behavior. Yeah. Stop crying. <laughs> right. I'm going to give you something to cry about, right? All of these things, yeah. like we're so focused on the behavior. Why is that person disrespectful? Why are they lying? Why are they doing this? Why are you yelling and screaming? I mean, how many Karen videos have you seen online where the person's like, why do you keep yelling? What does that have to do with anything? That just instigates more yelling, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Because someone's in survival brain, fight, flight, freeze. It's not like always like flight running. It's avoidance. It's not always fight, physically fight. It's with words. It's saying hurtful things. It's being demeaning. It's being disrespectful, right? Like, so those are flags. Like you can't rationalize with someone there. So the fight, flight, freeze is like the bears chasing you. Mm-hmm. When the bear's chasing you, you're not thinking about your homework. You're not thinking about your five-year strategic plan and what's going to happen six years from now. And is this a good decision today? Mm-hmm. You're thinking about surviving that situation. Mm-hmm. And so we have to be willing to have some empathy and to say, what's happening here? And I'm telling you, you can use this in anything. You can use this in politics. When you see something that's that is irrational. That doesn't make any logical sense. It's a prime time to say, what's going on here? Mm -hmm. What's happened to this person to make them say these things? This isn't, this, this doesn't seem right. Mm -hmm. What's happened to them? And if you don't know what's happened to them, okay, how do we get them to executive functioning? What do you need? That's where open-ended questions really come in. What is it you want? What can I do? Who can help you? Tell me about it. What's next? What did that feel like, right? Not putting on what you think they should do. Because even if you take it back to the tantrum over the cookie, right? It's like, I see that you're upset. Mm -hmm. What is it we could do? Yeah. Tell me about why you're upset. Tell me those feelings. Usually if you start asking those thinking questions, right? You start getting the, (laughs) right? For any kids. Okay. Let's take some deep breaths. What did that feel like? Right? It's not about the cookie. It's it's never about the cookie. And we want so quickly to jump to the solution or this is what you could do or okay, well, maybe there's peanut butter at the Winn-Dixie next door. And you could, and it's like, it's not about helping her figure out how to flip and get, it's about, it's a lot. It's a yeah, lot. It's she's a holding lot. A lot. She's just holding a lot. It needs someone to recognize that she's holding a lot. Yeah. Right. That's all she needed was somebody to recognize she was holding a lot. She's a smart enough woman to figure out how to buy peanut butter. That wasn't the issue. She just wanted somebody to say, I see you and I'm sorry. That's mm. it. 
I, I just do, right? I see you. It's the mom with the screaming kid. And you're mad because the kid's screaming, but she just needs help. <laughs> and you're like, that, my kid, my kid would never do that. Right. It's the empathy of like, sometimes we're not in our best moments in life. Sometimes we don't show our best selves and we all do it. Sometimes we write a short email. Sometimes we're curt with somebody that doesn't deserve it because we're mad about something else. But what we can do is like, I'm trying to convince people to just be an executive functioning more than trauma brain, but we have to recognize it in ourselves so we can recognize it in others. Mm-hmm. And, and I see good things happening where people are like, do you want advice or do you want to vent? Mm-hmm. Right. When someone comes to you, like complaining about something, yeah. it's like, okay, do you just need to vent yeah. or do you need advice? Because my response will be very different. Right. right. Like, what do you actually need from me? And even the process of asking that question is like, oftentimes start stops the person from venting, right? Because it's like, okay, you're right. This isn't a big deal. This Mm. is like, I got caught in traffic. It's not a big deal, right? But it's that it builds us up. And so we have to really normalize talking about feelings. Mm. So I have this good friend, David McCorkle, who once said, name it, tame it. Just say it. Looks like you're having a crappy day, Rebecca. And then by just saying that, oftentimes a person having a crappy day is like, yeah, because they just feel seen. They don't need to tell you about why it's crappy, what's going on. Maybe they do. But oftentimes people just want you to recognize, hey, you're really excited. Tell me what you're excited about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, hey, that looks interesting. Tell me about that. Like ask a kid about something they're interested in. They light up. hmm Adults are really the same way. We're just little babies and big bodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So that's it. It's about just that connection again. Right. We just kind of everything comes back to being connected and having empathy and empowering others to choose differently. I'm sure that woman was very embarrassed about her behavior, but I think that experience also allowed her to heal from it mm-hmm. and not have that be another trauma on top of all the other ones that are happening for her. Mm-hmm. I once heard this, this definition that um, trauma has 21 days to settle in the body, which means we can experience something traumatic, but if we get the services we need within 21 days, it actually doesn't then settle into our body as a permanent fixture It mm-hmm. is released and let go. And it was explained like a cut. So if you cut yourself really poorly, but you get really bad treatment, the doctors tell you it's not a big deal. They don't stitch it up, right? It can become infected, Mm -hmm. turn into sepsis and become all kinds of really nasty stuff. But if you get really good treatment and people take your complaint seriously and they stitch it up and they heal it, it's really not a big deal at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. And you may have a scar, but it's healed and you can move on. But if, but if you don't, it becomes a permanent fixture in the scar and then you're picking at the scab and it, right. And it's this constant wound and it that becomes never systemic heals. And yeah. Yeah. Cause it never heals. I love that. Um, I love that analogy. Well, so you've just been such a wealth of, of knowledge. Tell, tell people where they can get your book. Uh, garbage bag suitcase. 
Yeah, absolutely. So you can get it at all major retailers, including the big giant Amazon. And you can get it on my website, garbagebagsuitcase.com or shuffleoconsulting.com. Okay. And I'm going to link to all of that in the show notes and I'll link to it on social. And I really want, you know, I always ask about how can the, excuse me, I always ask about how can the community get involved in the foster care crisis. But I think this exercise that you have given, like, I want everyone, this is a monthly podcast. So I want you to go out this month and task yourself with one situation where you can hold this empathy and you can just acknowledge someone's experience um, and be there for them and not judge them and not fix them, but just acknowledge this is a lot or what's going on here. Just even if if you are, even if it's not like in Walmart where you're talking to somebody and you Mm -hmm. have to like intervene directly. But you just step back and where you notice yourself. Be safe. Be safe. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And and you can do it in a way where like you might notice yourself. Like for me, sometimes I'll notice feelings of judginess, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I go, and I know that that's something that's not aligned with who I want to be. So I go, what's that about? And you can take it that step further of what's going on here. And there's probably a million possible what going what's going on here, right? We don't know. Yeah. But it's probably it, it may not be the one that you have put your judgment on. Have imagined yourself to be, right? I think it's that intentional step. I think it's so clear. I just could I leave your listeners with one other assignment that I love to do when we're talking about foster care? Absolutely. So while you're out experiencing the world. I would ask you the next stranger that you run into, imagine yourself going to live with them. Mm. And I mean, taking all the belongings that you have at the time you see the stranger and what it would look like to walk through their front door with them. Where would you sleep? Think about what that experience would be. And then everything you have, you could go to work the next day, but you're going to come back and you're going to live with this stranger that you've run into on the street. And I want you to ask yourself how long it would take before you felt comfortable returning to the stranger's house and it no longer was strange to you. And so to me, that's always defined by you would open the refrigerator and make a sandwich without asking. That's how I always define comfortability, right? How long would that take? with everything you know, like you have humor, you have right social adult social skills, you have credit cards, you have a driver's license, you have all those things. We're not taking any of that away, but how long it would take you to feel comfortable. And then remember that that's what we ask 500,000 kids to do on a nightly basis is to return to a stranger's home. And so sometimes when we see kids with quote bad behavior, maybe we can just see it as them being uncomfortable with their current living situation. Hmm. I love that. And they don't have the credit cards and the consistent workplace. The job to give them them eight hours of relief, right? From this thing that's really uncomfortable. They're there 24 hours a day doing it. I love that exercise. This has been incredible. Thank you so much for all of this. I'm going to link all your resources. You're just 
Awesome. Such a great wealth of knowledge and uh, very engaging. So so excited to offer this to, to our listeners. Awesome. I hope they hit the links. There's lots of free downloads, things, classes that they can participate in. And so I'm just grateful that you give us the time to talk about these like really big issues. And Rebecca, if someone would just give us a trillion dollars and a magic wand, I think we could solve it all. 